Our sermon text today is from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1, and it goes like this. To her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, Well, none of your relatives is called by that name. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. Well, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all of his neighbors. And all of these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying these words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised by our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so incredibly grateful for this time of year. When in the midst of uncertainty and fear and anxiety, we can cling to the hope of the return of Christ. We're thankful for this time of year when we can rehearse this story that needs to be deeply embedded in our hearts and minds so that it begins to color and change how we live in this world. And so I pray that you would give us grace to do that now. I pray that in this text you would open our minds and hearts to see your character, to see your goodness, your faithfulness, and to see that you've done for us in Christ more than we could ever imagine. 
that our biggest problems, our greatest enemies have been defeated and they have been victoriously they have been victoriously triumphed over in the empty tomb. And so I pray that you would give us the eyes to see that, that you would comfort our hearts, that you would encourage us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is a special time of year. I personally love it. And as I said at the beginning of our service today, it begins the Christian year. Strictly speaking, Advent is not the Christmas season. If we really wanted to be strict about it, you, you would have Advent and then Christmas Eve and Christmas, which becomes the Christmas season for the 12 days of Christmas. Advent represents instead, not Christmas, but it represents the time just before the incarnation, the time just before Jesus becomes flesh, the time before God breaks into the world. It's the time before the New Testament. Advent is the season of darkness and uncertainty and waiting and hoping. It's the season of prophets proclaiming hope against all hope. It's the season of John the Baptist proclaiming in the wilderness that the Lord is on the move and that the Lord is coming. It's the season of shifting when heaven and earth are about to collide, when we can feel the rumbles in the entire universe, in every square inch of creation, there is stirring happening because the God of Israel is on the move. So Advent is this loaded season. It's not a neutral season by any means. It's a loaded season that gives us opportunity to grasp the gospel in deeper and more profound ways. So for this Advent, what I've done is I've selected text from Luke's Gospel. And the working title for this little Advent series is Songs of Advent. Because in these texts, we're going to look at these songs or poetry that are some of the most famous proclamations of what the God of Israel is up to. So for Advent, what we'll do is we'll jump around from Luke 1 through 3. This morning we'll be in Luke 1, next, next week we'll be in 3, and then we'll kind of reverse course and come back to 1, and then be in 2 at some point as well. And we'll be looking at these well-known texts that proclaim the collision of heaven and earth in the incarnation of Christ, that heaven and earth are meeting. So this morning... We're looking at a text known as the Benedictus, which is Latin for blessing. And it's taken from the first line in Luke 1, verse 68. It's the song of a priest named Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptizer. It's what we just read. And in his song, which is a prophetic proclamation, he blesses Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, for his grace and faithfulness. Now, before we look at Zechariah's song, I want you to reflect on the history of Israel. And I think this will be really helpful if we just sketch this out broadly. So, the Lord makes a covenant. This is a great place for us to start. The Lord makes a covenant with a man named Abram. And that goes back in Genesis 12. And he makes this covenant and he promises to Abram that every nation in all of creation will be blessed through the descendants of Abram. And despite the fact that the descendants of Abram fell and are rebellious and disobey and break the covenant and, and fail to keep their end of the obligations, the Lord remains faithful 
to his covenant. He remains faithful to that promise he made to Abram. And as the story continues, the people of Israel find themselves in slavery in Egypt. And all hope seems gone. In fact, they're there for 400 years as slaves. That's a long time. Four centuries of slavery. Four centuries of asking for God to intervene. And four centuries of seemingly silence from God. One of the things I struggle with is is talking with people who are suffering. I know it's part of my job, but it's always a struggle. The reason it's a struggle is because I wish I could force some inbreaking of God into their lives. I wish I could just force something to happen to change their situation. But it doesn't always happen that way, and we know that. Suffering can be prolonged. Suffering can be longer than we ever would have expected. It was for the people of Israel. And as we'll see, it actually was for Zechariah and for his wife Elizabeth as well. But eventually, in this story as it continues, God hears the cries of Israel and he determines to act using Moses and Aaron. They're released from Egypt through this miraculous intervention. And it's all on the basis of his faithfulness to that original covenant. Time and time again throughout the book of Exodus, we read that God is remembering his promise to his people, to Abram and to his descendants. Of course, from there, after Israel is released from Egypt, it's a story, the whole Old Testament really is a story that is a series of disobedience, judgment, repentance, and the Lord's gracious faithfulness to His promise. Yahweh never breaks His covenant. As Scripture repeatedly declares, the steadfast love, and that phrase refers to the covenant faithfulness of the Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That's his character. But when we get to the New Testament period, Israel finds herself in a very familiar situation. She finds herself in a season of darkness, longing for this promised Messiah or Christ, longing for one who would come and deliver them, longing for an anointed Savior promised by the Lord. Israel's not an independent nation. They are under slaves, but under subjection to the most powerful empire in the ancient world. And they are waiting. They're waiting for deliverance. Some of them are running out of hope. Some of them are cynical. They don't think God will ever come through. Some of them think it's necessary to take up arms for themselves against the Romans, and then maybe God will act. They're scared. They're fearful. They're disillusioned. They're wondering where the promises are. They wonder where God is. Again, they've experienced centuries of waiting and longing and hoping. And the last verses, even in the Old Testament, end with this note of expectation. In Malachi 4, verse 5, the Lord declares, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there's this promise that before the day of the Lord comes, when Yahweh himself will come, when Yahweh himself will break into the world, the prophet Elijah will come. And that's how the Old Testament closes, at least in the ordering we have. It closes with that hope and with that expectation that maybe God is going to do something. 
And that's really the expectation of Advent. That's what Israel was waiting for. That's what everybody is waiting for as we open the New Testament. So as we get to the New Testament, we find this world of watching, of waiting, and hoping. It's a world, as I've said, full of fear, full of uncertainty. They've been told there is hope, but the problem is they've been in the tunnel for so long They haven't seen any light at the end of the tunnel. Everything seems dark around them. It doesn't seem hopeful at all. And what's so striking about that history, just that little sketch of where we are as we get ready to go into Luke's gospel, is that it parallels our cultural moment in 2021. Just consider the last few years. I know the pandemic has accelerated so many of these trends and some of the dynamics, but we're living in a time period where many are looking at the future with uncertainty and cynicism. We're looking at the future and saying it's not going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. Many are looking for a savior. Conspiracy theories are beginning to flourish. They're on the rise. And why? Because such theories flourish when things seem hopeless because we need something to hang on to. That's what humans do. We need to make sense out of a world that seems hopeless. Some are looking for a Messiah, a Christ figure, to put things right, whether that's a celebrity or whether it's a favorite politician. Politics has this religious fervor to it right now. People on both sides of the political divide are hoping for the arrival of a utopian future. They're hoping for the world to be set right. Our moment is not unlike the first century. It's a bit like being in Israel and looking at the Roman rule and being part of the Roman Empire and saying, where is the Lord in all of this? Things seem so uncertain. That first century, by the way, being the first hundred years A.D. So I sketched this out at the beginning of the sermon because I think it's the best way for us to hear the text before us. As we open Luke's gospel, we're introduced to this priest named Zechariah. He and his wife Elizabeth, we're told, are righteous before God. But as we know, righteousness doesn't necessarily equate to material blessing or immediate blessing. So we also learn that they have no children. So we're told in one sentence that they are righteous, but they have no children. This, as some of you know, acutely and personally, is a painful experience. It is a form of suffering. It feels as though the Lord has withheld a blessing from them. And that is their experience. And that's the first characters we meet in Luke's gospel. Well, as the story goes on, Zechariah, who is a priest, happens to be serving in temple on duty during this time. And during this time, he meets the angel Gabriel. And just note here, he meets an angel. Heaven and earth are beginning to intersect. Heaven and earth are colliding. The rumbles are beginning. Gabriel tells him that Zechariah and Elizabeth will have a child and they will name him John. The question is why John? Nobody in their family is named John. But the name John is deeply significant because the name John means Yahweh is gracious or the Lord is gracious. His name is an indication that the Lord is acting in His gracious faithfulness. That He's doing what He promised to do. His name tips us off that the moment has come. That moment that all of the Old Testament has been waiting for. The expectation of the one who is coming. The Lord Himself. All of that is here. But there's more. 
The angel tells him that John will go before the Lord. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 16. The angel tells him that John will go before the Lord, quote, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And right there is the connection. Remember, the Old Testament closes with this idea that Elijah will come and then the Lord himself will come. And here the angel tells Zechariah, you're going to have a child. You're going to name him Yahweh is gracious and he's going to be like Elijah. Meaning he's going to be the precursor to the day of the Lord. Unsurprisingly, Zechariah has trouble believing. So as a sign, he is unable to speak until the child is born. And Elizabeth, his wife, becomes pregnant. And when the child is born, as we read in the text this morning, the neighbors and relatives want to know what his name will be. They think he'll be named Zechariah after his father. But she says the name will be John. Everyone is puzzled. It's not a family name. His name should be Zechariah. So they ask Zechariah, who still can't speak, and he takes a tablet, and he writes down that the child's name will be John. And at that moment... He can speak. The sign is completed. The whole idea that this is heaven and earth colliding, that God is intervening, has happened. All of that is completed in this moment, and everyone is amazed. And then Zechariah prophesies over this child. And it's this prophecy, Zechariah's song, the Benedictus, that I want to spend the remainder of our time in this morning. We've heard much of the context in the reading, and I've explained sort of the first part of Luke's gospel here. So what we'll do is we'll only look beginning at verses 67 and going through 79. So we won't go through the entire section like we normally do. So let's begin in Luke chapter 1 verse 67. There in Luke chapter 1 verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, just notice here he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is divine utterance. Again, heaven and earth are colliding. This this is a message not out of human willing, but out of God's willing. The Holy Spirit is speaking through Zechariah. Now for the content of this song in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. So why is Yahweh the God of Israel, the Lord God of Israel to be blessed? Because, see it there in 68, because or for he has visited and redeemed his people. The Lord is not absent. He is not sleeping. He has not forgotten his promises. He is breaking into the darkness. He is visiting his people. He is coming to act, to to redeem them. And what is redemption? It is deliverance. It is the same action that the Lord does when He delivers Israel from Egypt. It's the same action of bringing them out of slavery, but this time it's bigger. Egypt was just a sign or a shadow of the real thing the Lord was promising to do. The Lord is doing what He promised to do all throughout the Old Testament. We'll see what it is. Let's keep going. There's more to this in uh, verses 16 and 70. So He has visited and redeemed His people, and He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant 
David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Now, this language of the horn in the house of David, this horn carries connotations of power and authority and royalty. And we're told that this is part of the dynasty of David, which is all a fulfillment of a promise in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord tells David that one of your descendants will sit on your throne forever. And right there we know it can't be any ordinary king because ordinary kings are unable to sit on thrones forever. But a descendant of David will sit on the throne forever and rule from that throne forever. And so after almost a thousand years, that promise is coming true. Right here, we're told that one is coming, a horn of salvation in the house of the servant of David. And this ruler, this savior, this king will deliver his people, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, as early Christian interpreters pointed out, we're not merely talking about physical enemies. We're not talking about Canaanites and things like that that we read in the Old Testament. These enemies are not merely physical, and we'll see that as we go along in the remaining verses. But these are enemies of of sin, Satan, and death. The Lord's action is to defeat those enemies, and the Lord's action is because of His character. Remember, John's name has already tipped us off. The Lord is gracious. But then continue with me into verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. Now, this word mercy is much richer than we might imagine. It doesn't mean just, um, you know, staying your hand and not punishing someone. Mercy in the Old Testament is is often a word that it gets a little confusing here, but, but the word mercy in the Old Testament, at least the translation here, is often a word that refers to the Lord's covenant faithfulness, to His commitment to His promises. It's a rich theological term that refers to His faithfulness. And so it does here as well. And we can see that in the parallel line where it says that He remembers His holy covenant. So His mercy is illustrated by His remembrance of His holy covenant. This is the Lord's gracious remembrance of His promises that, as I said at the beginning, go all the way back to Abraham, which is in the next verse. Look at verse 73. The oath, so what covenant? The oath that he swore to our father Abraham, previously Abram, to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear. And then into verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So indeed the Lord is gracious. He is faithful. He's doing what he promised to do and he's doing it without human aid and without human merit. This is the unilateral action of God, of the sovereign ruler of the universe who is infinitely gracious and immeasurably faithful. Let me just pause here for a second and speak about the character of God for us. The world is an uncertain place. We've established that. We enjoy ourselves the benefits of living in the most advanced and most powerful nation the world has ever known. But our hope, as we know, does not lie there. Because in spite of this grand country, the world remains uncertain. But the basis of our hope 
It's not in a country. It's not in a, it's not in a political figure. It's not in a movement. The basis of our hope is in the character of the Trinitarian God, who in His infinite grace and His immeasurable faithfulness kept His promises and acted decisively in Christ to redeem us from our great enemies of sin, Satan, and death. So Zechariah speaks about John's role in that, in being the forerunner, the one who would proclaim that the Lord is on the move, the new Elijah who proclaims that Yahweh has come. Verse 76, and you, child, speaking to John the Baptist here, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now note here, there's no doubt in Zechariah or Luke's mind the identity of Jesus. He identifies him explicitly with the God of the Old Testament. You will go before the Lord. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the God of the Old Testament. And John will go before the Lord to prepare his way. So the identity of Jesus is absolutely clear. He's identified as the Lord, the God of Israel. Again, heaven and earth are colliding. Eternal God is on the move. Eternal God has stepped out of eternity, right, and stepped into time and space, into human history. John's task is to proclaim that the day of the Lord has come. That something is breaking into the world. That heaven is colliding with the material realm as we know it. The Lord is here. He is fulfilling every promise. Salvation is at hand. And as I've mentioned, I've used that triad of enemies. And I think that's just the, the biblical way of understanding the real problem. The sin, Satan, and death. That these aren't just concepts, but they are real enemies in Scripture almost personified, even sin itself. And the first enemy, sin, is going to be dealt with by a Savior who is none other than the gracious and faithful Lord of Israel. Look at verse 77. So the Lord comes to prepare His ways, right, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. So knowledge, or what we might call revelation, is coming uncertainty is being expelled. The plan is being revealed. The mystery is being uncovered. Salvation from sin, Satan, and death is coming in Christ. All of that doubt, all of that fear, all of that uncertainty and confusion is disappearing in the light of this new revelation because the Davidic king is coming. The one who would sit on the throne forever and ever is coming. Again, heaven and earth are colliding. And it's all because of the character of God, His covenant faithfulness, His grace. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy, again that same word mercy, but added with tender here, of our God, whereby the sunrise, or some of you have translations that say day spring, shall visit us from on high. The light of God's revelation is breaking in. Right? That's the idea of this sunrise or day spring. This day has come. The darkness is being expelled. The Word of God, the perfect image of God, whom we know as Christ, is coming to dwell in the world. The way John's Gospel puts it in that opening prologue is that He made His dwelling with us. The very Word of God, who is eternal God Himself. The day of the Lord is dawning. The darkness is being driven out. The light is showing in the tunnel. So after thousands of years of uncertainty, 
After hundreds of years of hoping for this expectation of the coming Messiah, there is finally a flicker of light in Israel. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And here we complete that triad of enemies. We don't see an explicit mention of Satan, but certainly the idea of darkness is uh, consistent with what we find about uh, the descriptions of Satan and the powers that oppose the living God. And then we see that third enemy in death, in the shadow of death. That is the situation. Here we have the completion of what I've been saying all along. Out of His gracious faithfulness, the Lord is destroying the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. This is the state of the world, our state, apart from the Lord's intervention. I love this quote from one medieval interpreter. He wrote on this passage, he said the following, He found us sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, weighed down by the ancient blindness of sins and ignorance, overcome by the deception and the errors of the ancient enemy. But the light has shone in Christ. See, despite our situation, the Lord is gracious, and He is constantly faithful to His promises. And that is our takeaway this morning. It may be Advent 2021, but the human condition and the uncertainty of the world is exactly the same as it's always been. It's exactly the same as it was on that first Advent some 2,000 years ago. Our hope lies in the reality that heaven and earth have collided in the faithful action of the Lord God of Israel. Christ has redeemed the world through His death and resurrection. The light of the day has come. That's the point of Advent. That's the point of this expectation where we spend weeks anticipating Christmas Day because the light is dawning. So through these weeks of Advent, which simply means, you know, coming, we are remembering that Jesus came, but we're not just remembering. We're also anticipating. We're also holding on to our hope that He will return again. We look forward to that day with eager expectation. Part of the reason that the classic text of Advent are texts like these, or texts like John the Baptist proclaiming in the wilderness, which we'll see next week, or even some of the what we would call apocalyptic texts. And what I mean by that is those texts, say in Luke 21 or, or Matthew 24, where we're told that the sun and the moon will be darkened and everything's going to be upended and inverted. Part of the reason is because we're trying to capture in language that we can understand the reality of what it means for the God of Israel to break into this world. We're trying to capture the reality of what it means for heaven and earth to collide. And during this season of Advent, we're talking about this cataclysmic moment when the God of Israel acts. And so it's with that that we go into this Advent season as people who hold the Christian confession with an eager expectation that this world will be put to right because it is on the basis of God's character that our hope lies. And so we can say with Zechariah, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Well, Pastor Chris is going to come and pray for us this morning to do our pastoral prayer. Um, I'll be outside after the service. 
Uh, Pastor Rupert is on vacation today. Um, I'll be outside if you want to talk. As always, the invitation stands. If this is the first time you've heard of what Christ has done and how God has acted in Christ, it is not about making yourself right with God. It is simply about trusting God's faithfulness in Christ. I would love to talk with you about that. If you're a believer and you just need to be reminded of this hope, of course, I'm available for that as well. I'm in the office this week. You can reach me then, or again, you can catch me outside. If you're interested in church membership, fellowship here at Monument Heights, we can have that conversation as well and talk about what that looks like. With that said, Pastor Chris is coming to lead us in our pastoral prayer. Lord God, we just thank you so much for your presence here with us this morning. Lord, as Pastor Sean said, the world is filled with so much uncertainty and stress. Lord, we are so thankful that we can just turn our complete focus on you and on your character and who you are. Lord, we thank you for your love, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you are there to provide for us and to take care of us. And Lord, that no matter how dark the days may seem, that there's always hope in you. Lord, I pray that as we go through this season, that we would truly look to share this hope with everybody we come in contact with. Lord, that we're in a lost and dying world that's in desperate need of the gospel. So Lord, I pray that you would just help us to be bold, to share your love and your grace with people. Lord, if there are people here who are struggling with just different illnesses or people that hear that hear, our, hear our message through the um, internet or wherever, Lord, I just pray that you would just meet them where they are, that you would encourage them, that you would share your love with them, and that you would provide for them. Lord, may we honor you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.